2: you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast follow us on our socials find out about special live events or buy that merch aka that hat i always wear go to our website www.andthewriteris.com.
1: Welcome to And The Update Is. I'm your host, Paige MacDonald, and this is your weekly music industry update. Spotify has launched a free premium offer for TikTok users in the UK, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Poland, and Turkey. Justin Procash has been promoted to CFO of Concord Music Publishing and Concord Theatricals. Rick Rubin has inked an overall TV and film deal with Endeavor Content. Under this deal, Rick Rubin will expand his Shangri-La recording studios to movie and TV production. The Recording Academy has banned chart numbers and sales figures in Grammy for-your-consideration ads. This shows that the Academy wants voters to focus on the quality of the recording rather than its success in the marketplace. Sony Music Publishing is teaming up with the Australian music company Alberts to rep the complete song catalogs of rock band ACDC and the songwriting and production team Vanda, Young & Wright. Damon Dash has accused Jay-Z of illicitly transferring streaming rights to his debut album, Reasonable Doubt, which was initially released in 1996. Reservoir has signed artist, songwriter and producer Rufio Hooks to a worldwide publishing deal. This deal includes Rufio's current global hit co-write Butter by the K-pop stars BTS and will also include his future works. Tencent Music Entertainment, also known as TME, is being forced to give up exclusive label deals in China. This is huge. UK streaming inquiry report is calling for a complete reset of the market via the right to recapture copyrights after 20 years. The members of parliament who orchestrated the inquiry are suggesting that the British government implements a right for artists to earn royalties via equitable remuneration from music streaming platforms. Manoskin, the Eurovision-winning rock band from Italy, were officially the most listened-to artists in the world on Spotify as of last week. The band officially ends Olivia Rodrigo's reign. Atlantic Records has signed a label partnership with indie record label Vinsulum. <laughs> V-N-C-L-M underscore, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but under this new deal, Vintulam Artists will release through Atlantic Records, receiving distribution, promotion, marketing, publicity, and more. Nancy Dubuque has been elected to Warner Music Group Corporation's board of directors, including being named chairperson of the audit committee and a member of the executive committee. Warner Chapel has signed a worldwide publishing deal with UK rap star and songwriter, Wretch32. Christina Erskine has joined Warner Music as its SVP Marketing and Promotions Australasia. With over 17 years of experience in the entertainment industry across Australia, New Zealand and Asia, Erskine most recently acted in the role of Director of Engagement at the Sydney Opera House. 360 Recordings has promoted Nick Dearman to General Manager. He has spearheaded global campaigns for Dom Dalla and U.S. campaigns for John Summit and Noizu. TikTok was the most downloaded and highest grossing non game app worldwide in H1 of 2021. Are we surprised? According to Sensor Tower data, the app reached nearly 383 million first-time installs globally and approximately $919.2 million in consumer spending in the first half of 2021. Walter Combs' WK Records is expanding, hiring new CEO and launching Mexican Imprint. Universal Music Group, also known as UMG, is launching Virgin Music Label and Artist Services in Brazil. Nicole George Middleton is appointed as Cap Foundation's executive director. Heartbreaking news: rest in peace to Cinderella guitarist Jeff Labar, who has died at the age of 58, and to rapper Biz Markey, who is best known for his hit Just a Friend, who has passed away at the age of 57. A big thank you to Haley Evans of Mega House for gathering today's news. Now stay tuned for this week's episode of And the Writer Is.
2: Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's smash producer, hit writer, and next-gen artist, instrumentalist, graces popular music with compositional ingenuity and prodigious credibility. Completing his first collection of records at 10 years old, and his first symphony at 14, this now 26-year-old has a group of number one songs, including one of the biggest of two thousand twenty one. When you're one of Brian Eno and Ed Sheeran's favorite collaborators, you can count on the trajectory of this still young career. I mean, he's already won the Brit's producer of the year and spent the past few years with UK music royalty and American music legends. All the way from London. Our guest is next up on your list of dream writers. And the writer is Fred John Philip Gibson, a.k.a. Fred again. That's
0: good. That was overwhelming, Ross. <laughs> Come to Did my wedding. Blushing? Why are you Why
2: are you blushing?
0: <laughs> Jeez, that was a lot. That was a lot. Does anyone ever give you one back
2: when you do that? Um, Does anyone ever go straight not, back
0: in? And your host is.
2: Yeah, exactly. I, I next time when we do the year follow up, I'll we'll give you enough warning. I should
0: have done that. I regret not doing that. Coming in hot with like a bunch of tips from your mom and stuff, like loads of compliments that you were really niche and stuff.
2: really funny you should definitely do it with like maybe a solid track underneath it maybe make a full (laughs) spend your time doing that kind of composition exactly your friend me okay (laughs) so obviously you know the the stats of you starting off really young um speak for themselves but i kind of just want to start you know beginning Are, are your parents musicians what was your childhood like
0: Actually, no. But like, they're. Um, I mean, sorry, my dad would want to correct me there. My dad picked up the drums about four years ago, and he plays religiously. Um, he's actually got a reserve drummer credit on basically everything I've ever done, including like Ed's tour. And Ed famously doesn't have any musicians, and Dad was a reserve drummer credit. Like he's he's all over the credits, um, always as reserve he's drummer. Got
2: he's gotten pretty good. Well, as a reserved drummer, you'd say. Yeah.
0: Say, say. In his in his drumming CV, it says it's a testament to the drummers above him that he's never been needed to be called up. <laughs> but um, but no, they're not like, they weren't raised as musicians. And they were like hella supportive. And started playing the piano when I was, you know, six or something. And then the drums when I was eight and the guitar when I was nine. And they've been, yeah, I got very, very lucky to have them.
2: Um, when you're doing your first full album at 10 years old how good can that album be not that good let's be honest but like there's no no in real in in realness though like you know i have a i have a 10 year old niece who actually writes kind of good songs you know my guess is that when you listen back to it you're probably there's probably some good things i actually
0: had a it was all, it was a whole piano uh yes th- then that was a whole piano piece. I got a um like a boss eight track not long after that, and I made thousands of songs on that, and then i mean it's still to this day one of the most tragic things that' happened to me one day it wiped. God, I, I still literally thought of talking about I could and I was there, I remember being like eleven and going to my mum being like, What's happened? Because <laughs> I didn't no one had talked to me about backing up. They didn't say that the whole world could betray you like that. And so I was just there like, what's happened? The whole thing's gone. and to this day I claim that the music that was on that boss eight track was the best songs I'll ever write.
2: It's yeah. like my tenacious
0: D tribute. <laughs>
2: yeah. You remember your your first good song? Um I guess that's a loaded question. you even I remember? A, I,
0: wrote, I made a song like around then that sampled, it's <laughs> so, so pretentious, for really, a 12 year old, but it sampled uh, the Dylan Thomas poem, Do Not Go Gently Into the Night. And I think that was probably quite good because I had the massive lift of a Dylan Thomas poem, so the lyrics were already a big tick. <laughs> um, but, so that was the first one that I remember so was sticking.
2: And there were a few I others. yeah. A song. Say again. Sounds like a Phil Collins song.
0: Yeah, yeah, it has. It did have that kind of vibe. In fact, because my dad always used to listen to loads of power ballads, so I wrote a lot of that kind of vibe to try and keep my dad happy for for a while. <laughs>
2: Still am probably. There's a big difference between recording an album and uh, sharing that album with people. Were you marketing that album? Like, did you give that to your friends? Did anybody hear this album? It, no, it wasn't like. Yeah, I'd split it to people.
0: Uh, but I, I had, when I went to, like, the secondary school I went to, I meant, like, I that some songs I made got found by people and I got absolutely rinsed for them. Like, they'd, like, clean me up on, like, the lyrics. I remember there was a lyric about a girl <laughs> who, I, who I adored at the time and about us and being in, I mean, I was twelve. Um, about us being in Dulwich Park, which is a place near me, and there was a lyric that said exactly that. And so, a bunch of like, you know, twelve-year-olds just waiting for the next guy to pick on—that is gold. So, yeah, for for a while, they were they were top secret. Once that
2: happened, there's a also a difference between writing an album and a symphony. What? What? I mean, <laughs> difference, bro? Where does it? Think Do You know from? what it is? Do you know Who
0: does that? that? I'll tell you, it's, it's the mind of someone. I go to, like, I was doing a lot of classical music and I said to my, like, uh, what was it? My piano teacher, I was like, what defines a symphony? My guy was like, it's basically, it's actually really loose. Like the definition of a symphony is just a series of like timbres. Like you couldn't write a symphony for piano, but you could write a symphony for small orchestra and you could write a symphony for even like organ technically because it's lots of different timbres. And so I was like, hell yeah, I'm going to get me a symphony. All I have to do is just turn up and make lots of different noises. <laughs> so I just got really enamored by the idea of like, I can I can get me one of them. I can't believe it. And so I, um, so I just went in on it and made this... Uh, I, I did two of them, and but I was so lucky at the time because I'm not, I was at a school, which had, you know, I had an access to like a fifty piece orchestra that I that were like friends and acquaintances, and they were up for doing it. So it was so like rare an opportunity. I didn't really appreciate it at the time how rare it was to be able to just be like, "Yo, orchestra, let's go." <laughs> but um, it's,
2: it's an orchestra in your pocket is ready. For- <laughs> yeah, I still feel very indebted
0: to those guys, all of them.
2: Uh, did people come and see it? I I know that yeah. it's a, it was done. It's two sold out nights. Of the the notes I have. I mean that means that a lot of people came and saw this.
0: Yeah, we played it. Uh, it was probably yeah, it was a good amount, like a, a, a thousand or so. Um, and the it was it was. It, I mean, it was hilariously like. I, I'm still the the, the second one. Uh, there are parts of it I'm still proud of. The first one. Well, I'm sure there are parts, but less. The um, the thing that was just so hilarious is after we did the second one, the, the theme of the second one was protests. There was like four movements and each one was about a different protest. So like the miners' strike and Tiananmen Square and so on. And we had these like enormous projectors and had made all these like video that went along with each piece. But... I remember there was this moment that was still get chills to this day thinking about it, where I learned from the first one that playing with an orchestra live when you also have a whole band playing is techie and hard, like in terms of miking violins and stuff. And so I was like, okay, okay, I'm going to do a little bit of click for the second one just so we can boost the orchestra up a bit because it's not really, as you obviously know, it's not really possible to do it without. And there was this moment where like right at the beginning of the... Like one of the movements we went out. There was a bar that was in seven eight, <laughs> and we missed it, and we went out by like half a beat and I was watching and it's, so there 's this click that's there, and there 's this orchestra that are there and i 'm there <laughs> and I can hear the click in am
2: my like ear. Or something
0: oh, it was torturous, and so I stood up from my thing and went over and started trying to conduct the orchestra to like bring them half a beat back to be in time with the click, because obviously the click isn 't moving for nobody and um, it was, we got a, I don't know, you know what I mean? You know, when you get to the end, you're like, just sort of, we winged it, but it wasn't great. But it was, luckily there was another night and we got it better the next night. But yeah, it was jokes.
2: Um, when I studied music in, in college and, and I remember getting in fights with my music theory teacher because she viewed classical music as a higher art form than pop music. And I had to have this, you know, you know,
0: Yeah, I've had a lot of those.
2: Yeah. But there are so many people who view symphonic music and classical music and jazz as a loftier art form, a more credible art form than what you do for a living. Um, why would you, with the skill set of being able to do symphonies, why did you decide that you still had, a, you know, your love in songs? Well, and, I think... And, you know, there's there's such a difference.
0: For sure, for sure. Like, But I think, like, on a fundamental level, those people are wrong. And we know that. And we're lucky to know that. Um, but, like... Why are they wrong? Well, so I... I, I why are they wrong? I, I remember having... a. I mean... The role classical music played from, you know, a few hundred years ago up until the beginning of the twentieth century was pop music. Current pop music is classical music, and the classical world is in a crisis of confidence about how to negotiate their place in a musical landscape that doesn't cater to them right now as much. And when I went to the college I went to, which was a classical one, um, and I had this tutor and. I remember doing like, they, they're very obsessed with like modern contemporary classical because I think as they felt classical music losing relevancy as like, you know, rock and roll and blues and things started to happen. They were like, okay, we've got to find ways to keep pushing the new stuff like Debussy did to him and like Bach did to him and so on. But it entered into this dangerous territory of Emperor's new clothes. I, don't, I mean, I, I don't want to speak too much confident on it because obviously I could be wrong, but my experience was was very much that because the best example I have is I did a brass quintet one week and I worked really, really hard on it. And I thought this is good, I think. And I had like all the scores ready and went in and I got this brass quintet to play and I was showing it to my tutor and she was like, Fred, this is very conservative. I'm not seeing a compositional voice. There's no identity for you here. And I was like, okay. I was like a little bit like, okay. I was like, okay, she could be right. Maybe she's right. And then the next week I had to do a wind quintet. And I totally forgot until the day before. And I was like, oh, shit, I've got to do this whole wind quintet tomorrow. They're playing it. Literally went on to like Sibelius and just mocked up clarinet bassoon oboe like just literally just played it with my elbows just made it so it was playable for a bassoon and a, like just gibberish absolute like blah, 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 nothing Cl- had my eyes closed each part played it through five minutes and I took it in and she was like Fred this is a compositional breakthrough you're really funny and at that moment I was like if I can trick you then this has no. No one could trick me into thinking that into me thinking that like the best songwriter. Do you know what I mean? No one could trick me into thinking that. If I if I can trick this, then it clearly is based on values that are not important to me. If you know what I mean.
2: There's also a difference between composers and instrumentalists, where a lot of instrumentalists in classical orchestras are playing covers. Yeah. Of. You know, I remember that was the argument I remember having was you know this teacher in particular was you know a second flautist in a cover band, and at least <laughs> I was, at least I was struggling to compose something unique, yeah. and and you know nobody goes to see an orchestra or most people don't go to see the the orchestra they go to see Mozart or they go to yeah, see the yeah. yeah. No, they, they're not there to see their particular orchestra that's not to criticize people who choose to do that for a living but it, it's a weird there there's such an ego attached to classical music it's interesting to find a composer you know to then who, who has the skill set to do that and the, to have the same kind of point of view you have yeah no, i
0: i also really enjoyed being i was like the Kind of the like rebel guy at college which is not a role I'm I usually play but there because I would like bring in my friends who are like rappers and stuff and I'd play like a piece for like you know tuba and 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 someone rapping they'd be like this guy's ridiculous what's he doing and we would just be I quite enjoyed being like provocative like that like it's not a role I've got to play a whole lot so it was quite fun for me really
2: when did you graduate
0: uh, Did you graduate? I didn't graduate no I left after a year and a half
2: Your your first cuts are with Brian Eno
0: Yeah no, I got very lucky with Brian He's still my one of he's still my like mentor and one of my great friends How Love does him.
2: Brian How does Brian Eno find you and you know for people who don't know who Brian Eno is you know um we've interviewed other collaborators of his before So I I am curious, like, I want you to explain who Brian Eno is to you and who he is, people who don't know who he is.
0: Brian is a beautiful, beautiful anomaly in the producer Hall of Fame, uh, as I think anyone who's met him would testify. Like he, when I first met him, I was 16. And he was my one point of reference in terms of how Big producers are <laughs> i've since learned <laughs> that it's not how any of the others are <laughs> and what and it's a be, in a beautiful way like he is so he exists in his own lane of doing i mean he, he, brian um i don't know you what are his things he produced he and was he in
2: heads, you too like so many you know and all of them like all of them and he thing. invented ambient music well MP- loosely invented yeah. ambient, ambient music. yeah peter gabriel just go down the yeah.
0: No, a lot of good a lot of good ones. Now, he's a, he's a rare and beautiful, beautiful. The, the texts I get from listen to this text. I've got to shut my camera so I can read this to you. Yesterday, uh, last week, he sent me a text that said, Dear Fred, in a dream I had last night, you suddenly appeared, but not as Fred, as Free D." This, you explained, with your new professional name. <laughs> this was your new professional name. But it also had something to do with making music in relief, like the grooves on a record. You had decided that music should now be seen as a form of sculpture. <laughs> and that was the end of the text. <laughs> I said, Brian, I miss you dearly. <laughs>
2: Do you just like the text? No, you- <laughs> well, I said,
0: my brother Brian, I miss you enormously. This is a beautiful thing to wake up to, and I'm glad I was with you in the night. <laughs> um, oh my Yeah, no, he's Girl,
2: uh, on 3D from now on. That's yeah, genius. trust me. <laughs> Are you wishing to start now? <laughs> um, okay, so you go from Brian Eno, and then your first, you know. To go from Brian Eno to Ellie Goulding in one year, who's introducing you to these people? It's a big thing to go from, you know, I'm, I'm doing a symphony, getting noticed by a, an avant-garde producer who dabbles in commercial music right mm. now to then working with, at the time, one of the UK's biggest pop stars, That's that's a huge shift. What is the who in the the business is starting? Like, how is your career starting to evolve at that point?
0: Well, I mean, I I met it was it was like a totally different thing because I I met Brian because um, a friend of ours, a friend of ours, Mel, who we love, knew Brian as she was his neighbor, by coincidence, and she showed him the symphony the second one I'd done. And so he invited me to come along to this singing group he does every like Tuesday. Obviously we haven't done it for a while, but it's like it's like just really casual, beautiful in his studio to sing some like gospel songs in harmony. But it will be like it will be like his neighbor who's a Masseuse. And then it'll be like Annie Lennox who's Annie Lennox. We all just stood next to each other going like I went down to the river to pray. <laughs> and so that so I was do I would go there every week from when I was 16, um, and just hang with just like <laughs> it's hilarious, and then I'd just hang after the sessions with Brian, and he I'd start to help him with his music, and he'd start to help me with my like projects, and it was I got very very fortunate. I mean I hustled hard, like if he told me make a song out of this, I'd make like 30 different things, but to play him by the next day and like not sleep. So I was definitely behind the scenes. I was like making sure this did not go to waste, but um it was a rare. Rare group of people. I mean, it's a bit, but it's so, sorry, what I was saying in terms of Brian is he's so like, he actually exists kind of out of the industry. Like he just does his own thing. He goes to the studio. He works on the things he paints most of the time. He works on the things that cross his mind. He'll spend a whole year trying to evolve some new sort of science thing almost as much as he will, a music thing. And so the going into things like working with Ellie and stuff, it was like a totally different, it wasn't like this led to that it was like i've worked with brian i still work with brian he's still my guy but then on the side i started writing a lot of songs with friends of mine and like play, you know finding ways to get them off to a and r's at labels and stuff um
2: how do you do that were you just cold emailing these people or did you start yeah talking? we
0: were cold emailing, i think off the back of the um second symphony we got a few contacts of people who a few labels had hit us up about it but then when you go along and they say right so it's really funny to me now to think like the idea of like 16 year old me and 18 year old my brother who was it was and is my manager going into like these labels to pitch them this thing that is like a concert that we can put on once every few months, we got like twenty grand in like getting like donations from funds and stuff. Like it's a fifty-piece orchestra. <laughs> like it's the most unviable commercial prospect. And I just remember like talking to these A and R's and being like, he seems like he's not quite like getting it. <laughs> and now I'm just like, no way is he getting it. <laughs> but um, we we did we were in touch with them, and I think they thought, okay, it might not be this exact one, but I think we'll we'll still reply to Fred's emails,
2: if you know what I mean. I mean. Think- Getting in the pop world is one thing. Getting in the, you know, I guess we'll we'll still call it ur- urban music. Right, you know, at that time, getting in with Lil Yachty and Stefan Don, and I know Charlie XCX is the 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 connection with Lil Yachty. Um, but you're working at this point from classical to hip hop. Uh, it feels like you managed to find a way to not get pigeonholed in an industry that notoriously pigeonholes people. How did you How did you navigate that? Um,
0: that's a uh, you know it didn't it had it didn't cross my mind at the time. I was generally always I was doing. I thought of myself as like mainly a hip hop producer from when I was like sort of younger like to me the symphonies were like they all had hip-hop and rap in them and stuff and I got my friends to like put verses on them and things like that so to me like and I did an album with a guy called Roots Maneuver not long after I worked with Brian who's like the UK he's like the UK godfather of hip-hop um a beautiful beautiful man called Rodney (laughs) and yeah, so we made an album. So to me, it was like I was carrying on in that vein. The thing that felt slightly newer was the pop stuff, actually. Um, but I'd, I'd I'd always really loved listening to that stuff. It's just not what my friends had loved so much. So I hadn't made it as much, if you know what I mean.
2: Oh, really? Um, um, but yeah, we we had songs on some of the same albums. I'm looking at it; it's pretty
0: cool. Oh uh, wow. safe, yeah. love We were that.
2: like we were like high fiving before. We yeah, that's right. Had- <laughs> Was passing in a in a
0: virtual corridor.
2: Uh, you know, you were getting into even in the pop world into circles that, you know, it's one thing with Little Mix where they are they're taking outside songs from all kinds of writers all over the world, but someone like Shawn Mendes is somebody who doesn't really open up a lot of his collaborations outside of his his crew of writers. Um, how do you get involved? You know, and Sean, and then obviously later we'll get into Ed and whatnot. But how do you get involved with people who, you know, how did they find you? Because I would assume that's how that happened. Or did you reach out to Sean? Well,
0: in that case, actually, that one is an anomaly because that was the first song I wrote with Ed. So The reason that particular link is an anomaly because it was linked because those two are friends. But for most of the others, it would be, I mean, my older brother who, I've worked with since I was a teenager is like so, so good at his job. Like it cannot be overstated. And so I've got, I've really lucked out in terms of one, having a manager from day one who I can just obviously like unequivocally trust with everything, but also one who's like truly works as hard as I do and is is like, is so good at it. (laughs) So um, I think a lot of the time, there were like marathons being run that I weren't wasn't always necessarily seeing that would lead to things that I was just like and here we go again. Like obviously we were both doing like we were both hustling and we were both like very very disciplined in our like I I I've always felt that the the one thing I really loved and took most from classical music college was the discipline of like the virtuosic players not so much the composers but more these like guys who are trying to be one of like three solo violinists in the world and it's just like it's like wanting to be like you know it's just unfathomable to the competitiveness in that industry for like so few slots and these people would be practicing you know 12 hours a day until their fingers couldn't play anymore and not just like practicing fun stuff like Good, smart, diligent practice on the right things and a well structured day and like that i re- I really want to apply that to this side of stuff um and so that's what we were definitely doing then, which probably helped um I'm trying to think if there was any particular I think it would just be like, you know, it's like we saw it as like kind of building up in the labels. So we'd work with one artist at this label and try and like smash that out of the park and then like build up to the artist that that label had and then build up to this artist, if you see what I mean, and trying to do that across all the UK labels.
2: It's so important for people who aspire to be... you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb. dot com slash host. Big writers and producers is to, to still recognize the fact that you have to work your way up. There's still something of a ladder. There are some people who mm. knock it out of the park on their first hit, and they just, you know, mm. or their second hit or whatever it is, but almost it's, it's so rare that somebody's first song is really the smash that defines who they are. You know, it's for not sure. That. I would you hate know, you, for
0: that to be the case. I'm I'm much happier feeling like it's just a constant ladder to climb. <laughs> well,
2: working. So, you know, working with Ed, who does have a lot of collaborators and you work on a song and, and it ends up with Sean, um, you know, there, you do a song with the guy and, and ends up going to be an outside song. That's it. How did that end up becoming a relationship where you started writing again? Was it a while? Or were you guys just like, oh, this is Kismet? We started again. writing again for Ed? Or for at all. I mean, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, no,
0: we as soon as we got in, we were it was very effortless and good and natural. We really got on. Um he's like a he, you know, he's not faking it. He's he's a really nice guy. <laughs> um And it was very, like, I think we complement each other. Um, Obviously, I don't need to tell anyone what Ed's strengths are. They're pretty obvious and enormous. Um, But I think in terms of, like, Ed is so quick and focused on lyrics, particularly. Um, And I care, well, I care enormously about both, to be honest, but I think he's so quick on lyrics that i would often try and, like, guide melody more um and i mean obviously as you know like a lot of the time it's just everyone doing everything but um there was a very effortless synergy we just would write three songs a day every day one would be bad one would be quite good and one would be weird <laughs> and maybe sometimes two would be good and, but usually it would just you get to the end of the day and be like great let's do it again
2: amazing um that same year in 2017, we'll get, get back to One songs come out. You have your first real hits. You know, George Ezra one, the Clean Bandit one. You have like hits at radio in the UK and, you know, your family sees it and hears it probably while you're in, you know, while they're in restaurants. <laughs> Did you start changing your expectations when you write songs, once you start having hits?
0: I I think that the the thing I the trap I think is most I'm most cautious to not fall into is that I think it's very easy for your mind to to glamorize the past scenario in which you wrote a song, like to remember, oh that day that we wrote that song that became a big hit wasn't it great we went and got coffee and then the chorus just came to us and and it was all just like a great day and so that and actually you forget the moment that you were actually struggling on that like one line in verse two for. Like 30 minutes, and you forget the moment where you start, lost belief in the song, and then you went on the like third production, and you had to go back to the first, you kind of just gloss it over and just make it this, like, oh, that beautiful time where this all came about. And I've clocked this sometimes when I'm working on a song, and I'll be like, really clawing it out, and I'll be like, oh, this isn't what any of the good ones were. And then I'll be like, actually, no, a lot of the good ones were this. <laughs> like, a lot of them you do have to kind of embrace. I mean, there's a really good Brian anecdote on this. He goes, um, when he was working with, I think it was you two, he took them. They were on, I think they were following up Joshua Tree. And they were in this place where, he says, they were like expecting every song to just kind of come because they just remembered, oh, you remember that afternoon where we just wrote The Streets Have No Name and it was all just great. We had a beer and everything it was just, just safe. And they were just kind of in the studio expecting it to come and kind of not embracing the chaos that one has to slightly embrace and the sort of slight struggle that often has to be part of making a song. And so he took them to this like three Michelin restaurant and, you know, everything was this absolute epitome of like calm and perfection. And they're in this restaurant with, you know, a waiter each per person and they're like so quiet with like soft music and it's all just really peaceful. And then he took them back to the kitchen where obviously it's just absolute chaos in a three Michelin restaurant it's like you know if you leave a plate here for more than 30 seconds it can't be served and everyone's running around like crazy and he was like this is where you make your music stop trying to make your music in the restaurant you make it in the kitchen embrace the chaos (laughs) which is a good one (laughs) Uh,
2: the next year which is not only a year ago so maybe it's, it's not that long ago um I Don't Care ends up being a a big song everywhere and you have Ed Sheeran featuring Justin Bieber and you have, you know, a ton of songs on the number six collaborations project for Ed. And again, it's sort of a, another step from having a couple songs on an album to having the majority of songs on an album and also having a worldwide big record and a, and a big record in the U S with, one of North America's biggest stars. Um, does it start to change the kinds of projects you're willing to work on once you um, start working on on a project where you have... I mean, this it, it, the amount of features, this just looks like so much work. It just looks the, exhausting. The ad record. Yeah, that album just looks exhausting.
0: Yeah, yeah, there definitely was parts of that. I, and it was humbling how much features along even with an artist as good and credible as Ed um but it was fun I mean I I don't I'm trying to think if I've changed in terms of things I'd want to work on I mean I spent a lot of this last year making an album with Corrupt FM who are like these UK garage comedy stars who I just me and my two best mates love garage and so it's every Friday we've just gotten together and made garage and it's been a fucking joy um I think I'd be inclined to say I haven't really changed the thing on that front too much but yeah, that that album was it was fun really it was fun, we just went to Nashville we'd go sing karaoke in Santa's right, Monday to Thursday get pissed on the weekend I loved it, I loved it because I really like the I can do a sort of a long working day and stuff, I love it
2: Why Nashville for a couple UK guys? Because actually it's
0: purely technical. It's just because that, Ed was on tour. And that is where if you're doing a like really big tour, they set up shop there because then they can fly out to each different date and be based somewhere for like two months, as opposed to moving around hotels for two months.
2: How did you like working in the US compared to working in the UK? I... I like Nashville. I I haven't yet found
0: my thing in LA. Personally, I'm sure I'm sure I will. I, I love British culture too much. Yeah, maybe that's right. I'm sure time will come where something. I mean, when I go to LA, I like I hang out with um. I basically just hang out with Boy Wonder. He's like to me it's like the him and like the his lovely like Canadian trooper. Like to me the my people out there. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't loved doing the few times where I've done like an LA thing where it's like a session each day with like a top liner and stuff. It's not really how I find I make the best music. That you know, what I mean, I, I find. Do you say same?
2: Yeah, I mean, I it, the the projects that are most enjoyable are the ones where <laughs> I know when I come in with an idea that was so close but we didn't nail it today that I can come back in tomorrow to either realize, man, that pre-course was great. Let's rewrite everything else or be let's start a new idea today and know that I can come back the next day after that and say, you know, that idea Monday was kind of really good and we just were like we're too scared to admit that it was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's- and- Versus, you know, you do these one-offs and then you have to – text each other about how good the song is, hoping the other person is going to pitch it well.
0: <laughs> yeah. no, that's LA I think. Oh, yeah, it's- no, I haven't done, I haven't really done any of that for about four years. But the, I, the the main thing for me is that I work with, I always like working with people who are the, like artists. If I'm not working with someone who's the artist, I'm like, I'll just work on my own and make my own music. I love doing that too. If there's, But I love working with people who bring something and propose like, propose a artistic sort of issue or juxtaposition that is exciting. Like, but if it's just kind of a white blank page with like, here we go, let's get songing. Then I'm just like, I'm like, what I would, I'll just go off and do lots of the other things that I find more exciting than that.
2: Well, you're starting to release your own music and doing your own music. Um, How how does that feel compared to, and do you like the pressure of that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I, th- I think it's, I mean, it It just, I, it was what I started doing. That's, I, I made like a, you know, back when I was first working with Brian, I made a couple of items of my stuff with him kind of helping out. And it was, it wasn't by any sort of intention that I stopped. It's just kind of various things happened, And then I was doing this and that and they all felt fun. Um, but then I kind of got to a point where I was like, okay, I need to, there's a, there's a, there's an, you know, an itch that needs itching, whatever it is. And, and funny enough, Brian, who keeps getting, you know, the honourable mentioned Brian, he he emailed me at about that time saying, "Okay, Fred, enough. Let's get back to doing some of your stuff." And I was like, "Safe. You're, you're. We're in sync." <laughs> so I, you know, yet again, I'm very lucky for him. But no, I really enjoy it because I think I'm. Um, Uh, it's a different muscle to flex and I don't want to only flex one. Like if I go in with, it's the same reason why I was saying I like working with artists who write and artists who bring a real thing because like I can go in as a fan and be like, okay, I can't wait to hear what would Ed sound like over this or like what would Stormzy sound like if this was like the lyric or something that's so fun to me. But when it's my stuff, it's more like I'm just like, blindfolded and throwing paint at a wall and every now and then I get to see what sticks and it's such a different feeling and I really love that because they both lead to different good things I think
2: yeah I mean part of your job I think as a collaborator is to help well, this is this is a terrible thing to say but like kind of help <laughs> help commercialize a little bit of their artistry like to keep them keep them focused so the song actually is like a uh, a song that's digestible, you know, because, mm-hmm. but when you're an artist and you're alone or you're creating a, a lot of <laughs> it, you can go as far out as you want. Yeah, yeah no, I, no rules, you know, and, and your collaborators are also trying to just make sure that you write, you know, focus on the song, focus on the song. But when you're a musician and you're an artist, you tend to make art, which mm. is not the same thing as, in a way, songs.
0: Oh, interesting. I see what you're saying. i actually I, I can't distinguish as easily. Um, I hear totally what you mean, but I don't actually feel that differently about the two. Um, like I, I definitely do need like I do get people to produce me. I've got a bunch of amazing group of people who I love working with who play the same role you're talking about for sure, and that is definitely something I've found to really helpful.
2: Why don't you do 100% of everything yourself? Why do you like to collaborate when you're the artist, when you have the skill set to do all of it?
0: I don't think I've got much evidence to work with that that would lead to a better result. Like, I mean, I, I so truly don't care about anything other than what the three minutes of music sounds like. I don't care if it's 100 people on it or one. And I've just found that I think particularly working as much as I like to work. When I was back in when I was younger and I would like make songs not quite as every day because I had like school and stuff and I just like couldn't wait to go do it in the evening. I think now because I want to stay making music 12 hours a day every day, it's helpful to have people who can, collaborators can really fuel that, I think. Um, and also I think just makes it
2: better. Totally. It's also fun. I mean, you know, when you, when you don't collaborate at all, you celebrate the successes alone.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't even, though I'm very British on that front. I don't think I've ever wanted to celebrate a success.
2: <laughs> Not, you, you also, you feel the failures alone, all of it. For sure, you know? for sure, yeah, it's yeah. All alone, and I don't know that that makes the experience. I don't think that makes any experience Yeah, totally. How much do you write, like a?
0: Uh, How often nowadays do you find yourself just writing 100% of yourself?
2: I mean, I work in theater a bunch, you know, actually this, this week last year was the last time I was in London right before we all quarantined and I was playing, I was playing shows in London and it was, you know, that it's a project that I write a hundred percent of, but I, you know, it was, it was for a project that was produced by, you know, good Ricky Reed, a good friend of mine and everything. So it wasn't like, I wasn't doing all of that, but when I work in theater and stuff, which I do a lot, I, I tend to write a lot of it alone. Yeah. And some of it, some of it I collaborate, but I think for the most part, it's like, there's something about diving into this world of knowing that it's going to be excruciating to finish this song. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why it's so hard. Like when you just even just having another human in a session, you some how many times do you come up with an idea where where it's you know the person's not even really contributing that much, but their presence forces you to focus.
0: Oh mate, <laughs> this is one of yeah, I hundred percent, hundred percent. I'm a big fan of all of those types of energies. In fact, to be honest, the energy I most find myself drawing for is more of that type of thing. Because I quite like getting involved and I'm quite quick in the way I like to work and stuff on Logic. So I don't really want too much there, but I love a guy who's just like got a taste that I know and trust and like a vibe that is encouraging of action, if you know what I mean, as opposed to just... Because basically, I think as long as you just keep doing, it's very much my stuff, just, just keep doing stuff. And other people help an awful lot with that.
2: I mean, so, some of your collaborators have been guests on the show, and we're friends with obviously Julia Michaels and um, you know Dave Hodges, who you did Afterglow with. With with hmm. you know um, both are such different kinds of writers. You know, Julia's like the her mind is so is also fast, and it's so um, emo. It's like an emotional kind of writing. And, and Dave Hodges is one of the most cerebral writers where he brings out a different kind of emotion, but they're totally different. Um, and they're obviously both really different than Ed, but the results have all been so strong. You know, Thank you, man. It's, it means that you're really good at, at also um, adjusting your skill set to the, to the person you're with. So even if you think you prefer one or the other, I don't think you look at those songs as... Love,
0: yeah. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. No, I definitely... Yes, I think I mean maybe mostly in my stuff. I would most draw for that energy. Um, But no, I I appreciate that, man.
2: Let's go with Afterglow for a second. Afterglow is obviously (laughs) continuing to blow up around the world. And it's a different kind of song for both Ed and, you know, anybody's worked with Dave. You know, Hodges knows that this is like it. 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 There's a lot of like. It to me, this doesn't sound like a song that you guys sat down and you wrote in a half hour. Um, this sounds <laughs> like one that you had to think about. Do you know what? <laughs> it is like a Half hour. Yeah,
0: it is that. It is one of those rare, um, rare lit, literally half hour. We got it because all the the sessions are filmed, and I think it was forty minutes from.
2: No way. Top to
0: bottom. Yeah, yeah. that is so funny that you said that. Though it's so sods law that the one thing going out. With. Um, but yeah, that that was. Um, it was like a, Which, just a jam. The whole
2: of the like, the, like the sort of vocoding kind of thing underneath yeah, yeah. it all, 40 minutes?
0: The, the, the synths that come in halfway through, I added like a week before it came out. But um, uh, like the little fluttery detail things, they're not big parts. But it's one take recorded live acoustic guitar vocoder and vocal all at the same time. And we wrote it just singing live. I was just playing the vocoder and we were just going through each line. We'd just come and then it was like, next line, next line, and next line. And it was like, and one, two, three, four, record. First take, done. It was a
2: beautiful, really rare moment. That's, um, that's really disappointing for the rest of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but don't worry, i got loads of the others. I've got loads where it's like, oh yeah, this, this chorus was actually right, said Fred. And then it wasn't right, said
2: Fred. <laughs> How... Do you have a personal life with the amount of music you're creating?
0: Uh, it's a good. I mean, I'm quite lucky in that. I live with my best friend, and kind of like my other best friend basically lives with us. All of my friends I knew since I was like four. Like no cap, literally like four, <laughs> growing up in South London. And so they're all still in South London. So, really, basically, uh, obviously not right now, but basically every Friday I'll just go to the pub and every Saturday I'll go to the pub again and I'll just see these people. I mean, I probably, I'm definitely the guy who's there a bit less, but because it's, because it's just so like, I love the pub, it's like my happy place. And if I've worked like really diligently, got on up early Monday to Friday and it gets to, you know, 9 p.m. on a Friday. I can't wait to go have five pints of Guinness. <laughs> so, yeah, a sort of slots that's a in. lot. Of well, if I, a- you know what I was going to say is I actually definitely under. <laughs> I tried to make myself sound more potential. It's definitely more like eight. <laughs> but the, yeah, it's, and I also love a rave. Like, we go raving a lot um, in normal times, like the London sort of, you know, like warehouse raves and stuff. They're just beautiful, beautiful places.
2: But those are such that musically that's so different than what you seem to create. Is that, um, is that by design that that's a place that you can kind of relax because it's not competitive?
0: I know what you mean. Uh, I
2: do make that kind of, like, I mean, a lot of my project is very
0: like rave inspired. It's much more softened. But it's very like... Yeah. Um,
2: but so it's like soft. Uh, it's not like, when, I guess when I think of raves, I think of like... A different level
0: of, yeah, no, I, I mean, I love, like, tempo. I totally hear you. Yeah, <laughs> when it goes to like, I mean, I was like at, in February of this year, actually, it seems like a distant place now. I went to Bergheim, um, which is do you know that place? It's a place in Berlin. I don't, uh, it's like the,
2: know, I've never been there,
0: right? Right, yeah. So, for people who don't know, it's like the, it's like kind of the world's most famous techno club, basically. And it's very like famous for its like restrictions on the door, like, you can't they'll just turn away half the the queues constantly forever and they'll just turn away anyone who looks like a tourist and anyone, usually it's just like people walking around with like people on dog collars and stuff, like absolute crazy, crazy amazing place. And it's just this enormous hall. There's two places, Panorama Bar, which plays slightly more melodic music and then the main hall that is just literally like, you'll get maybe like a chord an hour and a half, And the crowd will go mad. But essentially, it's just like 160 throbbing. like (laughs) Just constantly. And I went there on my own, like quite a few times, actually. I went to Berlin to write, and I would just write in the day and then go to Bergheim on my own in the evening. (laughs) And I would just stand there. And it was so beautiful. The, The system is like, it's this amazing, like, function one that was, like, customed for the place. It's meant to have the best sound in the world. And it surrounds you so much. And I remember, like... I was just stood on this bit you can stand on that overlooks like this whole warehouse and it's like swarm of people who are all like shirtless and just this moving sway of bodies at like, you know, 8am or whatever it would have been on like a Saturday morning. And I say, they let, like, they put um, like things over your phone so that no one's cameras can work and I remember after like six hours of just absolute no, there hasn't been a, a chord or a note in sight. I was like going out my phone and I had this like one of those like keyboard apps and I was just playing along to the beat to give myself some harmony in my ear. I was just giving myself a little bit of house piano over it. And then I realized that people were looking at me and having your phone out in Bergheim is like the ultimate Taboo. It's like, how could you betray the trust of the? And I'm like, no, no, I'm not trying to film anyone. I'm trying to add a piano. (laughs) Um, Which, (laughs) yeah, I got a lot of bad looks. But no, those are. I love those places a lot. What is success? (laughs) Jesus, Russ. (laughs) Um, What do you say to that? I'll probably be better at springboarding off of. I mean, I'm. I mean, to me, it's.
2: there's the, there's the 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 stock. I, I don't want to say the stock. I think if you ask somebody who doesn't make a living from music, they would probably say to make a living from music. You know, it's that same oh, thing sorry, where there's yeah, like, yeah. a big difference between, um, you know, being homeless and having a roof over your head and sure. having a roof over your head in a mansion like you getting the roof over your head is like the first level of success is making sure that you can, you know, if you can pay your bills by being a musician, you could argue that that's success. I just think everybody has certain goals and different perspectives on what they think success is.
0: Yeah, I I would say for me for me it would be like success is chasing like happily. Cuz like I I know that as long as I'm like happily chasing that's what i'll be forever like the goals i have is to- totally unrealistic i'll never achieve any of them but i'll be chasing them generally happily for the rest of my life and i and i quite enjoy the feeling of like not always obviously like everyone there's times where you're just like oh fuck like this is not a happy moment. but generally i feel like i'm happily i'm happily chasing the things that i'll never quite chase and that's success to me what are
2: those goals that are, what are those unattainable goals well, I just want to like. I want to want. I
0: need to make sure that I'm the best at music ever, like f- f- uh, in the world ever, from like Mozart to Quincy. Like, I, I know it sounds ridiculous. It's like Jesus Christ forever. it. But since like that's just for some reason how my brain is wired that like I like have to do that. And on one hand, I know that like I'm not. I, I know I'm not Mozart, but I also like know that I definitely won't be if I don't try. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, you know, I enjoy the, the struggle of it.
2: There was a thing I heard yesterday where it was, you know, if you... You know, essentially, if you want to win the lottery, you have to buy a ticket. <laughs>
0: yeah. I heard that the other day as well, actually. Told by uh, Johnny McDade, the lovely Irishman. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, there's there's no question that you have to go and want to be the best you have to try to be the try to be the best yeah and I
0: even I'm, I'm aware even that that is like a vague um thing to like aim for I enjoy the ambiguity of it but like I mean and I'll switch what the bullseye is exactly each year and each month but as long as I'm like getting up early and diligently practicing the thing I need to get as good as I possibly can at like I need to serve the thing that I could get really good at otherwise it would just be a shame um, it's a lot, you know. Don't want to. You want to try and. You want everyone to fulfill potential in it.
2: Is that for? Is it? You know who? Who would be the judge of being the the best?
0: Oh, no, no one. It's a ridiculous thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, John, me. there,
2: there are certain people. There's no question that a lot of people that we know that are successful in the business have a little voice in their head saying, "I want to be great. I want to. I want to win Grammys or I want to win Brits or I want to win you know sell have number one songs or i want to write the best musical of all time on right the best album mm. of all time. you know it's like something drives a lot of musicians and it and it's a you know it's, it's the hard part is if your happiness is related to the um the, the other people's perspective of what what the best of all time is you know what i mean it's oh, like yeah like, yeah no i hear that, that totally yeah that That is the chase of having those goals and loving the process of it. That's amazing, you
0: know. I love. No, I feel I feel very um, fortunate in that regard. It's um, yeah, it's fun. It's so
2: fun what we get to do. (laughs) I love. I mean, it's exactly right. All right, well, let's go to this to to this this five for five segment. I'm going to name five things and just tell me uh, what comes off the top of your head. Let's start hey. with Bryony Now,
0: what is it like a one word thing or like a?
2: Hey, um, there really like
0: would be like I I call him my Dumbledore.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Stormzy. Kind.
0: We're doing one word. I'd, he's kind. Burner boy. Oh, the best thing I can say about burner boy is the best thing he's the best thing anyone's ever said about me. <laughs> Burns said we like needed a press release for my um, when we were doing the Brits thing. <laughs> we like we get a quote from burner. <laughs> he sends back, if burner boy was white, he would be fresh. <laughs> <laughs> to this day that is my tombstone I swear
2: down there's uh, that's amazing there's he's probably the, like the one artist in the world that I want to work with that guy's just oh
0: mate he's so so rare the the, the way I met him was sorry Dan, not to derail your five five but it was so we were in a studio I was in back five years ago or whatever and um, Lily Allen of all people you wouldn't have thought she'd be the plug there she comes down because she was in the studio like a few floors above, and she was like, Fred, I've got this guy I want you to meet. And she brings in Bernard, and I was like, Say, and he was wearing this like head to toe, like bright silver polystyrene puffer jacket. He looked like a sort of futuristic dragon giant man. And I was like, Hello, Sir Bernard, nice to meet you, mate. And then we made a song that night, and his writing process is so I mean, you have to put up with like literally like 50. Blazing hot gelato joints being smoked, and if you can ride through that passive, then he just has the most pure innate music coming out of him. You just play the beat, and it'll just go round and round and round. He'll be like, next line, next line, next line, next line, and then suddenly you're just like, wait, is the song done? <laughs> Did we just do the song? And then you just like, he's just, it's beautiful. I love working with him.
2: The white burner boy, amazing. <laughs> um... What is it? Free D? Free D. (laughs) Brian. (laughs) Um, Ed Sheeran.
0: Uh, A real friend, I think. I would say, and diligent as well.
2: Your parents.
0: uh, Just... um, What would be the... I need to think of a concise way of summarizing their rare brilliance Like that, that I am I, um, of all the luckies I've got it's the that's the biggest one um they are so I can't quite just so sort of compassionate and sort of smart and balanced and tolerant a lot of the most important things
2: uh, I and, know a, this is- and a
0: great drummer, I should say. And and Charles is uh, yeah, right. an amazing drummer.
2: That way I get some text from your dad. Being- trust me. Trust me. <laughs> uh, I just saved it. Let's let's just do a sixth real quick because I think it's important. Your brother, who's your manager.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. The, the, oh yeah, I've already said the luckiest. <laughs> um, yeah, he is. Yeah, I mean, all the, I used up all the good words Paris my parents. <laughs> say again?
2: No, you said, I mean, you said earlier, it's like that, you know, to have someone that you trust, this is yeah. yours. But uh, hearing hearing you say that earlier, it's a like, yeah, I mean, when you get to work with, if you get to work with your best friend, that's one thing. If you work with your brother, it's like, man, that's your brother. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> you know, the- no you know how protective can you get it's
0: amazing yeah no totally totally no it's not lost on me how fortunate that one is like the more i do it as well the more you know i mean you'll have seen more than me but like the more you see how complex that relationship and how important that relationship dynamic gets and to have so many of the variables just automatically ticked you know like for example there'll be good managers who Maybe might be slightly more inclined to take the deal that will pay out in the next two years because they don't know 100 percent if they'll be working with you in five years because things goes weird. and for just to know that all of those things we're like we are so like we're in this for 70 more years or whatever, and so there's nothing, and we're just in the exact same boat, like it, it, it cannot be overstated how lucky I feel for that.
2: Well, thank you for doing this podcast.. This Love. Is a- Good, good way for us to get to know each other, and uh, thank you. And, Russ. You know, obviously, it's fun for everyone to watch when you see somebody, somebody's career on you know, I guess what we would call like a hockey stick kind of trajectory. <laughs> uh, so to watch somebody who has that musicality, it's exciting because. You know a, a lot of musicians are real musicians. We you know, a lot of people have picked up a trombone first, or picked up a violin first, or For picked sure. up. You know, didn't pick up Ableton Live as their first instrument. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's it's fun to watch somebody who understands real, the basis of music, and whose competition in music isn't necessarily who's the hottest right now, but looking at the pantheon of the greats and recognizing that there's more to music than just that another pop song it's fun to watch man love
0: ross i really appreciate it brother. it's lovely to meet you
2: thanks for listening to this episode of and the writer is if you want to hear music from this songwriter i just interviewed be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at AndTheWriterIs.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silverstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. <laughs>